This episode of An Organic Conversation is a special rebroadcast featuring some of our best episodes of the year. It is brought to you by Batiste Rum, the first eco-positive and sustainably produced French Caribbean rum, available at Trader Joe's, Whole Foods and other fine retailers. For seasonal cocktail recipes, batisterum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M dot com. Anyone who has ever loved an animal knows the sublime quality of that love. It's unconditional. It's chosen family. It is meaningful and deep and real, and it oftenly heavily impacts or even defines the quality of our lives. And whether we know it or not, it is actually life-saving. New studies are shedding a new light on the incredible quality and importance of this relationship. Animal and human companionship, proven benefit to our health. That's our topic in this hour here on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helga Hilbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. That is just exactly how to describe it. That sublime quality of loving an animal. Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? The sublime quality. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like. <laughs> There's something about it that is, I mean, love is love and love is just extraordinary. But something that made this topic so interesting, I mean, there's been a great deal of research done lately. There was a Huffington Post article. There was an NPR piece about this. And, and it talks about, you know, the love of an animal is this unconditional, non-judgmental way that teaches us so much just in their presence. Yeah, well, for for me, animals are our bridge to the natural world. Uh, I don't want to say environment, as that's usually us and then the other, this environment there outside of us. But yeah, animals are a bridge into the natural world. I'm sure you can observe similar health benefits to our being in nature. Uh, In this case, it's a living being. It's a soul, a body that you can touch and smell that you can rub your nose into, that has needs and interacts with you. So just like nature, actually, not much difference there, but much more active. And so this show hopefully will be such a great reminder of allowing nature more consciously into our lives and the importance of it for for our own health. And that is animal and human companionship, proven benefit to our health, our focus in this hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sidorani Palomar. This show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. 
dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Hilbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. We had several shows, actually regularly, the topic of nature and the topic of animals in our lives, the importance of that. We had wolf therapy and we had animals who self-medicate in recent weeks, all showing the importance of nature and the importance of that human animal or human nature relationship. But there's new research out and we're going to look at that this week because it will blow your mind. Animal and human companionship, proven benefit to our health. We all know of the love, but we're taking it even further or we're going to understand the concept of love even better after this hour. We have an amazing guest with us today. And with us now, joining us from Columbia, Missouri, is Dr. Rebecca Johnson. She's the director of ReChai. That's the Research Center for Human-Animal Interaction at the University of Missouri. If we have her with us, Dr. Rebecca Johnson, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. You're just the perfect guest for this topic. This is something that is very close to all of our hearts. We're very big pet fans or animal companion fans. We've got our our timber dog is with us in the studio every time we record. And he has a lot of (laughs) mascot and bodyguard and all of those great things. (laughs) Mood elevator. What what is the, that's actually, that's a beautiful segue, Sita. What is that history of the human-animal connection and, and its role in therapy or the, be- the therapeutic effects that it has. We had a show on wolf therapy and the guest was saying this is the, maybe the oldest that we know. Of course, horses come to mind that have really changed human lives. But where were the benefit really beyond survival maybe recognized in therapy in more modern times that you know of? Well, Florence Nightingale advocated uh, in the Crimean War that uh, pets, uh, a small pet bird in a cage could be beneficial to uh, encourage the morale of her patients. She was uh, a mad keen researcher in the days when research wasn't even popular, and she was uh, at that time observing all of the outcomes in her patients in the surgical units and uh, how they responded to these small pet birds. And she observed that it was very possible that the birds had an uplifting effect that could influence their healing. So that was really the first of any research that was done. And she was a a very good observer and very astute observer and made these detailed observations. So as far back as that, animals were being used in therapy. How did you come to this work? I know you're you're now the director of Re Chai. It's really like the drink Chai, Re and then C-H-A-I, the Research Center for Human-Animal Interaction. How did you find this work? Are you? I'm, I'm assuming you're a pet lover yourself, but what what made you choose this as the most interesting career you could you could pick for yourself? You know, as a nurse taking care of patients in the hospital, most of whom turned out to be elderly people, I observed that they were much more likely to do the things that I expected and asked of them to do 
because they were motivated to get out of the hospital quicker to return to their companion animals, their pets. <laughs> it was very important learning for me as a lifelong pet owner and pet lover to see that people were actually motivated to do healthier things because of their animals. So that's where things started. And then I founded the center, Reach High, in 2010 here at University of Missouri. It's a collaborative center between the School of Nursing and the College of Veterinary Medicine. And we do a robust program of externally funded research on putting people and animals together in ways that benefit both ends of the leash, particularly in population in transitions, such as older people, prison offenders, uh, children who have been abused, uh, veterans, and families of children with uh, autism. So our work uh, spans that population, and we, we show ways in which when you put people and animals together, great things happen for both. And that's how it all got started, and it continues now, hopefully in perpetuity. I love that, that it benefits both ends of the leash. That's hysterical. Mm -hmm. The website is uh, rechai, R-E-C-H-A-I, rechai.missouri.edu for more information on that. Well, we definitely want to talk about both ends of the leash, but let's start with <laughs> the human side of things and dive into some of your research. What scientific evidence is, is there to support the human-animal connection? You know, there's been some growing research evidence even since the uh, 1960s when it was begun to be taken up fully by uh, faculty members in universities and the pioneers in our field were working on it then. And there, the research has continued to grow since then. So we're seeing all kinds of exciting evidence. Dr. Johannes Odendahl was the first one in South Africa at the University of Pretoria to identify that there were beneficial hormonal changes in oxytocin, in prolactin, in also endorphins, and also in the stress hormone cortisol when people interacted quietly with either their own dog or an unfamiliar dog. So he was the first one to demonstrate these changes in our neurochemicals which form a strong basis for us to identify uh, what people might particularly benefit from this kind of interaction. But the research continues on, and we ourselves have found beneficial things that happen when people are connected with animals in terms of doing health-protective behaviors, like more exercise, walking. We have a whole program of research on dog walking that shows that you can get people to do things they wouldn't necessarily do because... They believe they're benefiting the dog, and in so doing, without even knowing it, they benefit themselves. Well, that's it's so fascinating that one thing you guys have been able to, or scientists have been able to measure, is a, a change in hormones in the body. Oxytocin was one of the ones you said, um, also endorphins, and these not only promote a general feeling of, of well-being and contentedness, but they also are a body's predisposition to healing and growing new cells. Is that correct? That's right. In fact, these are powerful predispositions. If we can put the body in the most favorable environment, internally and externally, of course, for healing, then we can shorten uh, hospital times. We can shorten healing times postoperatively. We know that when people are in better physical condition, they're going to have a better postoperative recovery. So when we combine this, what we call complementary therapy of interacting with a companion animal in some way, 
with what they're doing in their more what we would call conventional medicine for healing and treatment, then we hope and we want to demonstrate, and things are being demonstrated, that there's a synergistic effect that can happen. So, so then, in addition, you know, we were we've been reading about your work and and preparing for the interview. Also, f- read that even just the act of of petting your own animal, your own dog, in this instance, can lower your blood pressure. Yes, we've known that for probably about three decades really? that we can not only lower the blood pressure, but the heart rate and the respiratory rate of people when they companion uh, when they pet a companion animal. In fact. Oxytocin uh, release occurs even when they look and make eye contact with their companion animal. And that's a very powerful thing. So we don't even have to touch. We can have the benefit just by looking. If you've ever looked at your beloved animal, you know that that has a positive effect on you. This is what most people call the well-duh research because uh, people who are companion animal lovers get this. Now, is, is oxytocin the what they refer to as the love hormone, the one that is kind of released into our body when we fall in love? Is it the same thing that's happening when we see our pets? It's a similar kind of thing. Mm. Yes, oxytocin is very beneficial. In fact, it's instrumental when mammals are giving birth. So it causes the uterus to contract so that a mammal can give birth to her offspring. However, when there's no birthing process going on, Oxytocin produces a sense of well-being, a slight, a slight sense of happiness and euphoria. Uh, other people instead, it's something like when you eat chocolate, which is important for me because I am a chocoholic. <laughs> but it it produces that sense of well-being that can occur, and it's a it's a, known as a happiness hormone. We're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Johnson. She is the director and founder of ReChai. That's the Research Center for Human-Animal Interaction at the University of Missouri. ReChai.Missouri.edu, the website. Rebecca, what are you focusing on right now? Where's the edge? How far does this go in your, in your research, really, with the Research Center entirely dedicated to the human-animal interaction, again, for the benefit of both ends of the leash? Uh, how, what, what are you currently looking at of what that partnership or companionship can do? Great question. Thank you for asking. We're looking very carefully to identify things that uh, have not been identified thus far, and one of them is dosage. So, for example, how much exposure do we need to produce the optimal benefits for people in a variety of situations? We're working in particular with our military veterans. You know, there have been over three million Uh, veterans returning from the wars in uh, the Gulf, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And many of those veterans come back with post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, Mm -hmm. or a combination therein. And so we have been looking very carefully at uh, engaging veterans who have returned in a series of activities, one of which is training dogs from shelters to be very nice pets, to get them to a good level of obedience, but then to take the superstars of those dogs uh, who are qualified to become a post-traumatic stress service dog for another veteran. So we have been working to train these uh, dogs, and engaging the veterans gives them a sense of camaraderie with other veterans because, you know, when they leave their units, their military units, and come home, then they're on their own, and they've, they've lost their immediate peer group. 
So by creating this uh, sense of guys and girls who are veterans working together to train these animals, they have a new peer group created, sure. and they see the benefits to, uh, of their time spent with the dogs. And that study has been funded by the Waltham uh, Foundation of Mars Pet Care, and we're very grateful for that support because what we've been seeing is that those veterans have a reduced level of post-traumatic stress. And so we have also produced some service dogs for veterans, and there is a great need uh, in military veterans for these kinds of dogs that do particular tasks to help them get through their daily lives and remain integrated into their community after they've come home. Yeah, well, you're creating a new pack in a way, and you know the, the, the tribe that we all want to be part of, if that falls apart, creating a new tribe or a new pack is important. But can you, can you tell me if, what, what, it, what is it that makes animal-human companionship so powerful? In my intro, I was saying we all know the sublime quality of that love, that unconditional family-like, meaningful, deep, resonant, real love. But is that it? Is it the love? Is it the, the sense of mini-tribe that you have? Like, or what, what is it about that, that whatever animal it is that we feel, you know, we found our best friend or unconditional love? That's a great question, Helga. What we find is that is the unconditional acceptance. You know, when our military service members separate from their branch of the service and they come home, they are not always understood. They have been away. These deployments have been very long oftentimes. There have been multiple deployments. So they've been away from their families, away from their committees. And when they come back, they can't possibly be exactly the same person they were when they left. Sure. So the nature of this unconditional love that these animals give them is beyond anything that a human can truly do. Because if you think about all relationships with other humans, it's almost never completely unconditional however, or judgmental. However, with the dogs, there's no judging. There's no conditional love. They just love entirely and freely, and they have no limitations on the love that they give. So while these veterans are working together with each other on a worthy cause, they also share the camaraderie with each other, but they experience unconditional acceptance. Everybody can use a little more unconditional mm. love. Nobody has enough of that. Amen. <laughs> and when you talk about sizes or dosage, you're actually saying dosage. What came to mind was chihuahua, and you might need a bigger dose, which might be a cocker. But no, we actually do want to talk about which animal is, does it even matter between species? But we want to talk about that after the break. We're going to take a quick break. We're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Johnson, the director and founder of ReChai, the research center for human-animal interaction at the University of Missouri College in combination with the veterinary medicine department there, rechai.missouri.edu, the website. Really important and healing work that is being done in the research to prove the benefit to our health of that animal and human companionship. Uh, Rebecca, stay with us, and um, we'll be right back with more. This is An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Citarani Palomar. And a thank you to our underwriters. This show is brought to you by Batiste Rum, the first eco-positive rum of the Caribbean. Ask for Batiste Rum at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, 
and other fine retailers. More information, batistrum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M dot com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Johnson, the director and founder of ReChai, the Research Center for Human-Animal Interaction, ReChai.Missouri.edu, the website in this hour of an organic conversation. So, Rebecca, you know, we talked a lot about the benefits of having a, a dog in our lives, but we know that there are, are all kinds of animals that have been strongly bonding with people, not just through the courses of many generations, but even therapeutically these days. And I'm curious, are there certain animals that excel at addressing a specific therapeutic issue? For example, are some better at calming anxiety and others are better with depression or working with children? What have you found? It's a very good question because what we want to do is to have a, a solid match between the person we're trying to help and the type of animal and the interaction that will occur. For example, one of our postdoctoral fellows in her research on children with autism found that many times children with autism will do very well with a quiet animal such as a cat or a rabbit. You know, dogs tend to be more in your face, kind of wanting to be in everyone's business kind of thing, just a style of interaction that may not lend itself as well to children who have uh, tactile issues mm -hmm. or sensory issues that often uh, occur for kids who have autism. So what she has found is that children often will do very well with a quiet, soft animal is not so much in your face or in your business in that situation. And that's a new discovery because we've often just assumed that it should be dogs and everybody loves a dog and a dog is always the best animal. But in fact, it may not be the case. We know that human-animal interaction is not beneficial for everyone because if you are frightened of animals and you don't like animals, then this is not the interaction for you, of course, or the intervention for you. Of course, I wouldn't give penicillin to someone who is allergic to it. That doesn't mean penicillin doesn't work in legions of other people. So it's the same principle. But we want to find the best match, and that's an area of research that's very exciting for us. And we found, uh, for example, that by teaming veterans with horses in the therapeutic horseback riding project, we can have a significant decrease in their PTSD symptoms in only three weeks of a one-hour-per-week riding session. So there is a wide scope of potential with this human-animal interaction, and that's what makes it such an exciting field because there's so many that we can help and so much that we can do. Well, cats and rabbits and dogs and horses are all mammals. And mm -hmm. have you seen, I actually came from the other angle when you said, you know, everyone uh, kind of assumes the dog as the ultimate therapy or therapeutic application animal in that sense or has the most effects on, I would understand that through the wolf-human connection, um, really changing our 
hunting practices and, and keeping us safe, one of the oldest animal connections we've had. But I was thinking turtle. I was thinking fish. I was think, thinking bird of what you mentioned in the beginning. When it comes to unconditional love, usually the the shape or whether or not it has fins or paws doesn't really matter. Love is love. So you're saying it actually does matter. Some animals are more... Uh, more equipped in that way to help with one specific condition. Have you seen that also at the same time that love is love, that if you love a turtle and the turtle loves you back, that that, that can be as therapeutically beneficial? We have not ourselves. However, there is research demonstrating that people who uh, bond with their snake derive a great deal of sense of pleasure and relaxation in interacting with their snake. And the same goes for birds. So, uh, yes, that those, those uh, benefits have been documented in other people's research. We haven't been studying uh, non-mammals, but it certainly has been done, and we expect that there will be more, because as we learn more and more about the depth to which human-animal interaction can take us in terms of helping people, then we want to see what other animals might be engaged. Yeah, one would think love is love, whether it's a dolphin or a salamander. It doesn't really, in the heart, it's, uh, you know, all love is created equal. <laughs> all unconditional right. love is unconditional love. But it does bring me to the other end of the leash yet, the, the, the yet the other end, which is the animal itself. Have you seen studies where the the effect on the animal of love was measured or observed or scientifically researched. How, how, Definitely. How, yeah, how, how does that affect the animal being loved? That's one of the wonderful things about Dr. Odendahl's research, the South African veterinarian psychologist who actually also studied dogs. He demonstrated that in the dogs there was a beneficial decrease in blood pressure and in the uh, same hormones that he studied in humans. So it is a reciprocal kind of benefit. And we ourselves have uh, shown that dogs who have been interacted with have a very rapid blood pressure drop in a quiet petting interaction. We did a replication of his research. And in actual fact, the dog's blood pressure dropped quicker than the humans. Mm. Because wow. if you think about it, dogs live in the moment more totally. than we do. We might be sitting there interacting with the dog wondering, did I unplug the iron? <laughs> Where do I have to go next? And worrying about what will happen. However, the dogs don't worry about any of those things. They're in the moment. They were on our sofa in our laboratory set up, being interacted with, petted with. Next thing you know, they were flat out. Their blood pressure was significantly decreased. And, and so they don't uh, experience some of those <laughs> mental uh, delays in relaxation that humans do. Yeah, I can totally relate. When I pet my dog, I almost think like he's not interested because he passes out right away. <laughs> <laughs> I always think like I must be doing something wrong, but like literally no, within... Well, that's a true sign yeah, of effectiveness. <laughs> yeah, within 10 <laughs> seconds, he just stretches all his legs and then you know, puts his head to the side and that was it. Um, right. Yeah, really lovely. You can only imagine what the, the health benefit, the long-term health benefits are when 
an animal has been loved like that their entire lives. Yep. I mean, and same thing with a human to have to have that kind of bond that keeps your blood pressure low, your Incredible. anxiety low. You, well, you know, one thing that that I found interesting as we were talking earlier about which animals are effective with which treatments. And one thing you said, you know, if a person is, is afraid of animals, for example, then certainly you're not going to pres- prescribe somebody who's allergic to penicillin, penicillin, even though it works. It, it has me wondering about whether or not there's information that exists about cultures that don't have strong companionship with animals. Has there been research in animal therapy in, in those societies? There's some very interesting research being conducted by Dr. Brenda Jagathiesen at University of Washington regarding pet ownership on this. In particular, she's a child psychologist and is looking at the interactions in various uh, in children of various cultures. Hmm. And while the interactions are very, very different, there is uh, no less sense of bonding with companion animals. So that's a very exciting thing, so that if we have this bond that occurs, even in the face of different types of interactions, then we know that we have a more widely applicable uh, interaction. So that is very exciting, and I think that research is taking off, and it's going to have a great deal of potential for the future, because as, you know, our world becomes smaller and smaller, and our populations become more and more diverse, we want to be able to use interventions that have the maximal impact for the maximal number of people. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's very important. But then in that case, so in this example, it's with children, and I understand that the study was done with children, but is that, is, that, is that a core part? Has it been measured that if you interact with an animal as a child, you're more likely to derive benefits later in life? I mean, if somebody who's never had a relationship mm, with an so animal when they were person. children and then totally. has, you know, is put into a situation where they have the opportunity to bond or pair or receive therapy from an animal, are there, are there those effects measured? if they didn't develop this relationship until adulthood? That's a very interesting question. And to my knowledge, it has only been studied retrospectively by looking at people who are presently interacting with an animal and deriving benefits and determining what is their pet-owning or pet-loving history. That's a very interesting thing because we know that the relationship can change over time. Think about it as yourself, you know, when you're a college student and you're racing around running, doing a job, working and having classes, you're going to be maybe less likely to be interacting with your companion, companion animal. You probably left it at home. It doesn't mean you love it any, any less, but you're not deriving the benefits as much from it on a daily basis as you were before. And so as people go through different periods in their lives, we know that their interactions with companion animals uh, change and are different. Uh, baby boomers who are having empty nest syndrome uh, often have the pet replacing the child who's left and gone off to college. In fact, uh, some of my undergraduate students have said, uh, when I left, my dog got my bedroom. <laughs> so uh, there, we know these interactions change, and the beauty of it is that this can be fluid, and because it can be fluid, then we can apply it in different contexts over different time with different people. To the contrary, have, is there any study or information out that you are aware of where cultures, or maybe that's too broad of a spectrum even to scientifically measure that, but where cultures do have a strong 
uh, companionship with animals. What comes to mind in in Europe, you know, Greek people are really close to their goats. There are, as soon as you leave mm-hmm. the, the cities, the main animal on the hills are goats. And in, in Germany or in that part of northern um, Europe, dogs are allowed everywhere. People bring their dogs into restaurants and they, they lay under the table. It's completely normal. I, I had to learn that, you know, my dog Timber couldn't couldn't come into a restaurant here in the United States. Uh, odd for me because that's all I know. That's how I grew up. They're absolutely part of any hotel or family. There's no hotel that is not dog friendly in Europe. H- have you studied cultures, Asian, European, where a particular bond to a particular animal as a culture existed and has measurable effects? That is one area that is very, very promising in our field. And it is only just in its infancy. And I look for a lot of research on that to be coming in the future. You know, I happen to be president of the International Association of Human-Animal Interaction Organizations. We're a global umbrella organization of over 90 Uh, associations around the world who are all doing research or teaching or practice in these areas. And these are the very kinds of questions that are beginning to be asked Mm. because we're wanting to look at what might be the widespread uh, applicability of companion animals as pets, but also as interventions for people. And so, no, we don't know those answers yet. I think it's a very exciting area of inquiry, and I, I'm sure it will be growing very rapidly. Yeah, I said in my intro that the an animal or an animal bond is really our gateway to nature. And I don't want to say environment again, because that's usually, you know, us and then there's the outside environment. But we are beings of nature we are of the same planet and an animal is an easy access into or maybe the most direct access other than food but food doesn't really i mean it interacts with you but not in a outside of you visual (laughs) way so nature does interact with us but an animal as a living creature uh, and and love uh, really directly received and and given it seems like it is the gateway to nature Again, we're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Johnson, the director and founder of ReChai, Research Center for Human-Animal Interaction at the University of Missouri. You brought up the perfect last question for us because we're almost out of time, but where do you see the future of this body of study going? Uh, We are talking psychological therapies already, post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, physical. You were saying that because there was a bird in the room, people wanted to get or people notice to to have a different approach to their healing process or people who have an animal waiting at home, they want to get out of the hospital quicker. It seems like there's a real organized therapeutic use of animals and that love that we have with them that is really, we're just scratching and sniffing the surface, pun intended. But even though so much amazing work is being done and you're such a leader in the field, the widespread application of that has not been embracing your work the way it, it needs to, really. Are you, what, where are you seeing this going and how are you bringing this really into the mainstream medical field? The way that we need to be going, and, and it is definitely happening, is by integrating our work and our conferences and our discussions and our conversations and our uh, literature, literature with uh, those in the human health field. So organization has uh, member associations who are in both animal and human health fields. 
And the way we do it is by having the dialogue and sharing what we're learning and getting our work published. We have a very good paper coming out in the Gerontologist, which is the premier uh, aging therapy journal in the U.S., and it demonstrates that dog walking is highly beneficial for older adults. So we have shown in our research that if we can get older adults uh, walking a dog, not even one that necessarily is their own dog, then we can not only maintain their normal walking speed, but increase their normal walking speed. Mm. That's very important because the whole of the uh, developed world is aging very rapidly. And what we need to do is maintain function in older adults so that they can remain as happy and healthy and independent as possible for as long as possible. But we practice aging in place here. We have a wonderful retirement residence called Tiger Place. Our mascot is the tiger, so everything here at Missouri is the tiger. And there we facilitate older adults to keep their pets, to engage with their pets, to walk their dogs, to help them interact and play with their animals, to remain not only uh, psychologically healthy, but also physically active and physically healthy. This is of vital uh, importance for the developed world because of the worldwide aging phenomenon. So we want to be focusing, and that's a key area of research for the future, to carry on with demonstrating how we can enhance that in older adults. We still, of course, will have the veterans, and they are going to be aging right along with the rest of the population. So we continue to address their needs, and we definitely need to be addressing this idea of dosage and which animals for which situation and for which people and which conditions. And, and then, I, you know, I think it's very, very important that we do address the area of culture and how cultural differences come mm-hmm. into play and how we can maximize that human-animal interaction across cultures. It sounds like it's not just maintenance or post-disease. What I hear you say is actually that it could even go as far as preventing diseases, right, by understanding that human-animal connection better. Yes, because we know that people who are more physically active and physically healthy are able to avoid physician um, um, appointments. That research has been shown over and again in the human-animal interaction literature that there are fewer patient-initiated doctor visits among people who are actively engaged with their companion Mm -hmm. animals. Uh, Dr. Roland Thorpe from Johns Hopkins demonstrated that older adults who regularly walk their dogs Uh, maintain their physical capacity and their health better and even improve it. So we're going well beyond just maintenance. It it isn't just about maintenance. Everybody wants to have maximal life satisfaction and health. Everyone wants the most love. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. I think that this is very exciting work, and I can envision a future where your doctor says to you, here's what you need. You need to eat you know, three servings of green vegetables a day. You need to play with your dog for 15 minutes at least. half an hour. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. five minutes of meditation and um, uh, 20 minutes of music, and you'll be fine. <laughs> and this well, idea that's of, exactly right, Sita. I mean, it's a, those are just the parameters that we need. We've gone past totally. just looking at <laughs> conventional medicine. We're looking at holistic care and holistic health. And I think that the, the public want that, and I think that the healthcare providers are starting to. 
Dr. Edward Cregan at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, prescribes uh, pets for his mm. patients. Oh, there are incredible. many, many health care <laughs> providers who are prescribing pets for their patients. Wow. And I only look for this to continue as the research comes out in mainstream uh, journals where healthcare providers read them. That's why I mentioned our paper in the Gerontologist, because we uh, are publishing our work now, not just uh, in journals that only practitioners in our field read, but in journals that healthcare providers read so that they can uh, use that research as an evidence base for their practice. And how great that we can help with spreading that word. All that research, I would think, is on rechai, R-E-C-H-A-I, dot Missouri, dot edu. Is that correct? Yes, but I'd like also to point out that there is a wonderful resource for people that's called Habri, H-A-B-R-I, Central. And Habri Central is a compendium of all the writings on this field. Oh, so there people can find not only research, but also testimonials, also practice articles, education articles. That uh, it's a wonderful service as a one-stop shop for looking for that kind of information. And that's habri.com? Or dot, uh, dot org. I think it's .org, actually. .org. Okay, Habri. H-A-B-R-I Center, she said. Yes? Habri Central. Central. C-E-N-T-R-A-L. Great. .org. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Rebecca Johnson. Uh, thanks for joining us in this hour, Rebecca. Wonderful to have you. Such important work and really laying the groundwork for, for decades of, of better, more holistic uh, patient care and really understanding nature and the importance of love and companionship in our, the human experience, really, of life uh, for all of us. So thank you for your incredible career and work. Pleasure to have you. Thank you very much to both of you. It was a, my pleasure to do this, and I hope that the listeners will enjoy the conversation and that they will begin exploring these kinds of things for their own lives. Great. They, they usually will. do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Thank Johnson. Thank you so Have much. Have a good evening. Good luck. You're most welcome. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And you're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And that was Dr. Rebecca Johnson. Animal and human companionship, proven benefit to our health. And there's more proven benefit to our health about another kind of companionship, that with produce, what's in season. We've got to work on those segues. That was, I don't know what that was. And with us now, hopefully, is the voice of the organic produce world and of Earl's Organic, Earl Herrick. Are you with us, Earl? Hello, Helga. Uh, Hello, I'm here, and I'm so happy to hear from you. (laughs) Yes. Hi. Hi, y'all. Spring has sprungen, I would say. It's everywhere now. It's warming up. It's longer days. The fields are drying up. Um, Equipment can be moved. It's that like anticipation period where you know that the The abundance is just uh, right on the other corner. Do you feel it on the produce dock? Oh, it's really, really exciting. And, and you know, it's been an exciting spring altogether going back to, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, probably the middle of, of February. So... It discontinues, and um, there's a particular item I want to talk about because right now is probably the best time, the best value because of the circumstances. Oh, and that is what is it? That's asparagus. 
Asparagus. Uh, huh. Yeah. Asparagus in, is universally, historically, it was asparagus and strawberries were the two items that reminded us all, here it is. Winter's behind us. These are the first items that are popping up, <laughs> and, and it's available. I mean, things have changed because it's so global now. Yeah. But, but right now, what makes it a good value is that you have production from several different geographical areas. Hmm. So that surplus of product drives the price down, which makes it a relative bargain for, for the consumer. Because you have Mexican, you have lower California, think uh, around Bakersfield, and then you have the Gonzales Salinas crop, which is, which is, of course, the breadbasket of California. All that production is happening now, and to market all of it, it becomes a, a, a price issue because who are you going to buy it from? People start dealing on pricing. So think you could probably get product right now for maybe mm, you know maybe four three ninety nine to four ninety nine a pound for organic asparagus. That's a very good price, and the quality this year is excellent. The climate's been perfect. Uh, you know, asparagus loves sandy soil, moderate climate. So there's actually a time which has already ended where where it comes out of the desert. Mm-hmm. But it but it's a very short hit because it gets so hot in the days. They, it doesn't get very cool at night, so it's a very short period of time. What can so, you tell us about how to how to best buy it? It's like there are so many different. There's the classic asparagus that I grew up w- with that was like th- as thick as a thumb, and of course I only only wanted to eat the tips, and my dad mm-hmm. hated that. But that's really <laughs> yeah. the most tender. But nowadays you get these really like you know pinky size. Is that are those all different varieties, or are they just harvested at different times? And what what should the consumer be aware of? Moisture content, how to store differently. Sure. Yeah, it is all the same variety, and it is different growing conditions and also different areas of the field. You know, I'm, I'm like you. I like the thinner stuff, but the, but the bigger, thicker, what we call jumbo, is if you cook it right, it's very, very meaty. Mm-hmm. Mm. The, a couple of things you want to look at. One is deep color, vibrancy. So you want to look at for deep, rich color. If it's faded, yellowing at all, light green or, or dull. Or dried up. Exactly. Then that those are indicator of age, and this is this is a grass. I mean, it's going to be really sweet when it's really fresh. So you definitely want to t- take a good look at it. Uh, some people display it in water to, to keep it hydrated. That's not a bad idea. When I take it at home, if I don't use it right away, I, I stand it up in the refrigerator in a little bit of water or a, or a small cup or or a little bowl and and, and keep it hydrated. It is the major thing hydration. Um, Many times you want to look at the butt end. You can see uh, dehydration pretty easily there, but also realize that you could probably cut off uh, an inch or two off the bottom. You're not going to use anyway. It's kind of woody. Some people that are fairly experienced uh, take the spear, you know, the the long edge, the long spear of it, and gently find a place where it breaks off, and that's where you want to break it off. It just naturally has a place when it's fresh. Can you use the bottom end, the more stocky stuff for smoothies, for example, like put it in your green blend? Asparagus is not really good in a smoothie because it's, it's, a little bit bitter. It just doesn't, it's not yeah, one of those gotcha. raw vegetables that goes well in right, a smoothie. Right. But what you can do is you can, you can take a vegetable peeler 
and take off the yeah. the more fibery parts on the outside, cool. and then you can put it into stews and things. Like if you're going to cook it yeah. for a longer period of nice. time, it's going to add some great fiber for sure. Yes. Yeah, I was well, I was curious whether or not that would be something good for stock. Yeah. Because it can impart some some very distinctive. Uh, edge to it. I only use like asparagus and corn. I only use in stock where I will use either asparagus or corn in the final Ah. product because it does impart such a distinctive flavor. It's not something that you're going to put into a bean soup and it's good. It'll be very distinctive. Yeah. You know, there's a couple uh, holidays that are coming up that are very much associated with with asparagus, and that's Easter and Mother's Day. Mm. So there's some bar. There's, again, it's all kind of relative. There, look, look for some opportunities there to enjoy this at a at a fairly reasonable price. Also, great. Uh, you know, asparagus is one of those items that are just intriguing when you see it grown. Um, I, I remember going out in the field and and watching, and we will watch it because it almost you can almost watch it grow because uh-huh. on a warm day overnight it will virtually grow three four inches in a day. Really? Right, right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Now, again, it's one of those very, de- there's a real balance to achieve with asparagus. It likes warm weather, but not hot. And you need moisture, but not too much. So a sandy soil that, that's the word I want, uh, flushes well, that drains that, well. Yeah, that drains you, well. That's the word. Mm-hmm. Drains well is really what you want. So uh, if it gets warm in a day, that's okay. It'll, it'll just grow faster. But if you have several days like that, it'll, it'll bolt and overgrow in a minute. Cool. But when you see it in the field, it's just these these spears just jumping out of the ground, just in this very irregular. It almost looks like somebody with a very light beard. Mm-hmm. It, hasn't, it hasn't fully formed, but it's really really interesting to watch. It's a it's a very exciting piece of vegetable from a culinary standpoint. I love when asparagus comes out because there are so many things that I can use it for. Earl, you mentioned Mother's Day. This is a great thing to do for breakfast, like with an eggs yeah. Benedict or something. It makes a really wonderful soup. As we're just in the end of the cold winters, I do a quinoa and asparagus soup. It's also Grilling. just a fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Grilling or roasting in the oven, and you get the the tips get nice and crispy. It's just like the perfect vegetable side dish for whatever you're having. Since it's a seasonal item, though, Earl, quick tip uh, on can do they freeze well? Would you cook them and freeze Mm. them then, or would you would you freeze them raw, or what's the deal? Well, that's a good question. You know, I'm not a big vegetable freezer, so you know, I don't think I'm a I'm, I'm not. I'm not good there. <laughs> of but course. Well, you eat it You're as soon as you bring it home. Freezer. I mean, it's I know true. you only buy so what you're going to eat, and that's really yeah. generally the way to do. But let's say you get a fan fantastic price and you want to buy a lot what you can do Helga instead of cooking it all of the way and then freeze it do like a, f- oh, a flash really boil you just put well not even oh, gotcha. I mean not even you just want to drop it in the water for like 30 seconds minute tops and that just keeps it from being raw and frozen and then you can reheat it I mean the, the texture is not going to be the same when you pull it sure. out of the freezer thaw it and then cook it but if you get a great price hey it's a great way to make put soup put it in a tupper flash, flash heat it for 30-45 seconds and then put it in a Tupperware and then put it in your freezer. That should yeah, last you want to cool it completely months. first. Like put it in boiling water for nice. thirty seconds to a minute, then put it in ice water, then dry it really well, uh, freeze it, and you can pull it out and make soup. I feel like you're announcing the spring to us, Earl, and that's yeah. what a messenger you are of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, enjoy organic asparagus, asparagus into July, maybe halfway through, depending on how warm it uh-huh. gets, and, and sometimes it ends sooner when there's a if we get a real uh, warm spell. You know, it's it's a fairly small season, fairly yes. short, uh, and it's, it's something to be enjoyed. It's it, that right it now. really anna- it really announces the season. Yeah, where so enjoy it now. April, May, June. Thank you so much. And yes. from now on, we are talking spring vegetables. Yeah. Can't wait to have you back next week. 
Ah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so Thanks, much. Thanks, I'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye. Now. Bye. We'll be back with another episode next week. Looking I'm Helga Hellberg. I'm Sitarani Palomar. This we'll is see an organic conversation. Bye. Bye. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate Producer, Kristen Ponger. The show is made possible through the fantastic support of our underwriters, Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or the culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at Earl's Organic. Com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And Batiste Rum the first eco-positive rum of the Caribbean. Ask for Batiste Rum at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and other fine retailers. More information at batisterum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. For more episodes and our podcasts, go to anorganicconversation.com. And of course, you can follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. Our Twitter handle is talkorganic, and we're also on Instagram. I'm Helge Helberg, host and executive producer of An Organic Conversation. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>